Song number 125 was just announced, and we certainly are excited to mark that and use that at the appropriate time in the service this morning. Isn't it a great opportunity to assemble this fourth Sunday in September this year? What a great day to appreciate the blessing we each have to assemble and to gather for the purpose of worshiping the great God in heaven. Thou shalt worship the Lord thy God, and Him only shalt thou serve. The famous refrain that Jesus uttered in Matthew chapter 4, verse number 10. As we come this morning to this part of our service, in which we'll give some consideration to a section of the Word of God, it'll be that 8th chapter of Romans. And so if you would like to keep your Bible open to that place, we'll really be using portions of chapter 7, as well as those first few verses of chapter 8. No condemnation. Some introductory comments might indeed be reasonable. And you'll notice I've tried to entitle it as follows. I would suspect that there are several chapters in the Word of God that especially capture our attention. Perhaps they are some of the most favorite chapters, and perhaps they just recognize that the teaching is so very magnificent in terms of the promises expressed, in terms of the hope that's set before us. Many would call the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew chapters 5, 6, and 7 an amazing section of the Word of God. Others might look with great power upon the second chapter of Acts for good reason, the birthday of the church and the events that surrounded that great occasion. Others might look to Hebrews chapter 11 and see in that the honor roll of faith and what those did who were in fact reckoned amongst the faithful of the ages. But might I also suggest Romans 8 likely ought to be considered in any such category. The 8th chapter of Romans is some 39 verses that sets before us an amazing consideration of the genuine magnificence of what God has wrought through Christ. Today, you and I will only take a small portion of that chapter. The first four verses and strive to look in some detail at what's there. And I believe before we're finished, we will reach an amazing conclusion. To you and me who are Christians, maybe there's no finer section in all the Word of God that shows just how amazingly blessed we are. Just how amazing it is for you and me to consider where we now are and what we have to look forward to. But by the same token, the other side of that coin, if you please, maybe there's no single section of Scripture that paints a bleaker, darker, more challenging question for anybody that's not a Christian. So I'd like to use this as a point to say, if there's somebody in this audience today that's not a faithful Christian, whether it be because you know you've never obeyed the gospel initially and you need to, or whether you did but you're not faithful, Please, please with urgency listen to what God has to say through Paul today. It really does paint a dramatic picture. Why don't we begin as we close that slide by thinking about this particular chapter as it comes on the heels of the one that preceded it. Again, chapter number 7. You and I are probably familiar that in Romans chapter 7, some of these statements come before us. There's a lengthy discussion of the law. L-A-W. And time and again, we're reminded about things that the law made possible and things that the law brought before the reality of human appreciation. I've called to your attention just a few of them. As Paul made discussion about the matter of the law, 
he's discussing the law of Moses. And he highlights some things that that law made possible and also some things that law did not make possible. Could I call your attention to verse number 7? Romans chapter 7, verse number 7, when it says, What shall we say then? Is the law sin? Is the law sin? And Paul was quick by inspiration to reply, God forbid. That Old Testament law was not sin. Now it's true that it informed about what the nature of sin was. It informed certain things that ought to be done and others that ought not. God was very clear in saying, Thou shalt not kill. By the same token, thou shalt not commit adultery. Thou shalt not covet. Thou shalt not steal. And thus, if one chose not to abide by that, and you did kill, or you did commit adultery, or you did covet, you were guilty of sin. Notice verse 12. So as surely as the law identified some characteristics of disobedience and sin... Verse 12 says, Wherefore the law is holy, and the commandment holy and just and good. God's law is always holy and just and good, isn't it? It identifies what He demands of His human family. He identifies in it what He expects, and yea, what will be brought to bear in judgment. In that Old Testament law, no wonder then we come to note this. There was punishment often expressed when one transgressed that law. I've called it to your attention here. The transgressions, and you and I remember it frequently. When someone, for instance, committed adultery, the penalty put that man and that woman to death. Both of them were to die. That was the penalty that God expressed. That same kind of penalty also occurred with a number of other ones. An individual who committed murder... That person was to be put to death. You see, if you took the life of another, your life was taken, of course, at the mouth of two or three witnesses. But you, of course, gave your life because of the sin you'd committed in taking another one. On other occasions, we remember also God's Word spoke very frequently about the fact that His soul shall be cut off. Now, revisiting that in the context of Romans 7, what conclusion do we reach? That Old Testament law was such that we might ask this. Did anybody keep it perfectly? Any human being keep it perfectly? Did Abraham keep the patriarchal law perfectly? Of course not. He lied. And he encouraged his wife to lie. When it came to the time of Isaac, did he keep it perfectly? No, he lied too. What about Jacob? We notice again, more than once, mistakes in his life by way of deception and otherwise. When we come to the law of Moses, did Moses keep it perfectly? We know that he didn't. At that scene in Numbers chapter 20, he did what God did not encourage him by authority to do. And even Moses was not allowed to enter the promised land. David committed adultery, murder, and drunkenness. And one by one, the other noble characters of the Old Testament, but none of them kept it faithfully 100%. Paul uses that idea to note this. Given that they failed to keep that law as they should have, as God delivered it, notice verse number 24, if you would. Romans 7, verse 24. It is a very weighty verse. 
O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? This death, the fact that I have violated the law of God, the fact that I have not kept it, I'm under the sentence of death. Hadn't Paul already affirmed in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. It always is that way. And now, as chapter 7 is drawn to its conclusion, O wretched man that I am. More than once in that chapter, Paul had affirmed that one might have a mental desire to keep the law, but then the weakness of the flesh causes problems and difficulties, and I ultimately do things that I know I shouldn't. May I suggest to you, maybe you and I beneath the Christian law sometimes find ourselves in a situation not unlike that. I know what the Bible has to say about the fact I shouldn't be doing this, I should not be talking this way, and I ought not be going to places like this. But yet in the weakness of the moment, my friend has invited me to come, and here I find myself in a place I know I don't need to be. Sometimes I'm weak in the flesh. Maybe you are as well. I find myself in a position. I wished I'd never said that. In a matter of consideration, I allowed my feelings of strong anger to be represented in a way that I said something I later regretted. Have you found yourself in a situation like that? Oh, wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? As Romans chapter 7 verse 24 closes, may I submit to you, it appears hopeless. Here I am in a state of sentence of death. I do my best, but yet I still fail. I have the strongest of desire, but yet I'm often just like the Master told Peter, James, and John in Matthew 26, 39 to 41. The Spirit is indeed willing, but the flesh is weak. It is, as chapter 24, verse 24 closes, though, that aren't you and I so thankful that is not the end of the Roman letter. Verse number 25, and then into chapter 8 we go. For verse 25 says, I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. In a verse that sounded so hopeless, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? In the very next breath, Paul says, I thank God through Christ Jesus there is a way out of this problem and a way out of this difficulty. As you and I come near the bottom of that, might you and I notice the strength of Romans 8, verse number 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death, for what the law could not do in that, it was weak through the flesh. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin condemned sin in the flesh, that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. Let's add a little elaboration to the strength of verse 1. First of all, I've entitled it with the word verdict. We've already presented a situation in which, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me? I am in a state of sentence whereby death is the absolute thing that should happen. But now in the very next verse, verse 1 of chapter 8, 
Paul says, there is therefore now no condemnation. That sentence and all the bleakness and the darkness and the terrible character that came with it, he says, there is no condemnation. This is a great verdict. It is an amazing one indeed. You'll notice, why don't we allow the Holy Spirit to fill in a number of details. First of all, what about the wording itself? I've tried to list for you some of the Greek words that are here, not as though those actual Greek words by themselves in our language are needful, but the meanings are things that I would invite all of us to note. First of all, the word no. That comes from a Greek word that literally means in no respect, not at all. It's not as if there's a small sentence of condemnation. There's none. Not even the smallest minuscule amount. In addition to that, notice the next word. The word therefore. Even though that is the third word in the verse, that brings the concept of a conclusion, a summary, an amazing description, tying up that which has formerly been stated and now going to state it from the perspective of no condemnation. Thirdly, this word now. Now that looks like the word noon in English, I admit, in Greek, but it's noon, and it literally means at this present time. And you may already notice, chapter 7 had been discussing things that were true in the past. Chapter 8 is going to discuss things that are true now. Aren't you thankful along with me for what's true now? It sounded so dark and so bleak and so unappreciable in the Old Testament. But think about what we have now. Finally, the word condemnation. Katakrima. It literally means that which has reference to a legal term. It occurs both in the act of judging and in the sentence pronounced. In other words, chapter 8 verse 1 brings to our mind the thought of a court scene. Imagine a judge. There's of course someone that's on trial and maybe there's a prosecuting attorney, but there's a defense attorney also. And we appreciate there's a legal term Paul is using here. And the judge is going to declare no condemnation. Set the man free. Now under what sentence is this freedom pronounced? And what are the qualities that allow it so? That's what we're going to develop. As we noted earlier, what chapter 7 appeared to present to us, O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? We're now about to find there's no condemnation. Chapter 8 verse 1. I might invite us to ask, so who are those who are not subject to condemnation? Who are these people? What are their qualities and what are their characteristics and how did they come to be in that place? What did they do that brings themselves to the point where the judge has declared no condemnation? As we close that slide, may I say that is an amazing question. Let's develop it. So who are the subjects? Who are the ones of whom it is said no condemnation? Verse number 1 of chapter 8 tells us, would you read it again with me? There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. There we have it. 
The sole reason why this individual hears the sentence no condemnation is not because of his educational background, not because of the country he lived in, not because of the age of time in which he happened to live, not because of his family heritage, not because of the character of his talents or abilities, none of it. The single and sole reason as to why he has pronounced no condemnation is because he's in Christ Jesus. That's the only reason. That's the only assertion made in the Holy Scriptures on this occasion. As you and I develop it, let's notice. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. At this point, the immediate question is, then how did this person come to be in Christ? What did he and what did she do? There are only two places in all the New Testament in which it's told how one comes into Christ. That's it. Let's look at both of them with a bit of care. One of them is two chapters earlier in Romans 6. Go back to verse number 1 of that chapter and let's notice Paul's beautiful presentation. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Now that immediately through the first two verses of Romans 6 sets before us this thought. I cannot live a life of habitual sin and claim to be in Christ. Because notice verse 3's presentation. Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. There we have it. You'll notice that that individual who was baptized into Christ, that's how he came in to be in Christ. He was baptized into Him. He didn't pray into Him. He didn't pay money to get into Him. He was not otherwise invited to be into Him. He was baptized into Him. That verse again reads, Know ye not, Paul says, Don't you know this, that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. So Paul, how did we get into Christ? We were baptized into Him. Look over to Galatians chapter 3 for just a moment and let Paul discuss with the Galatian brethren similar ideas. In verses 26 and 27 of that chapter, Galatians chapter 3, as Paul wrote to them, he spoke about being a child of God. And he put it in language like this. Galatians 3, verse 26. For ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. Question, how did they put on Christ? The text says they were baptized into Him. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ did put on Christ. Thus, we can now go back to Romans 8 verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. There is an amazing distinction between one who is baptized and one who is not. Because one who is baptized has put on Christ, that person is in Christ, and to that person, this sentence is given no condemnation. The judge who is able and, of course, will stand so valiantly before will pronounce no condemnation to that person. Aren't you excited about that? I think we all should be. 
So now we ask the personal question, have I been baptized for the remission of my sins? Have you been? If you have, you stand so powerfully beneath the sentence of no condemnation. But if you haven't, if you haven't, notice this verse doesn't apply to you. No condemnation will not be the word you hear. Condemnation will be the sentence you hear. Damnation will be the sentence you hear. Separation is the sentence you'll hear. Let's read on. In addition to that statement of verse number 1 so far, you'll notice that this presentation, what happens at baptism, so often is described in the Bible in ways that truly are transformational. And I use that word with a bit of care. That person who comes out of the water, the person's wet, we know that. But something else enormously spiritual has taken place. That person's sins have been washed away. Wasn't it true? Ananias told Saul, And now why tarriest thou arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord? That man who before, namely Paul, who had been covered in sins, persecuting the church, everything that he had in terms of opposing Christ in his ministry, Ananias said, Your sins will now be washed away if you're baptized. All the guilt that came with whatever you did, Paul, will be no more. No condemnation is what it sounds like, doesn't it? You'll notice we can develop some of those thoughts in ways like this. It's no wonder that that brings to our mind those statements of Jesus. He that believeth and is baptized shall be saved. That's plain and simple, isn't it? Mark 16, 16. And isn't it any wonder then that the Ethiopian nobleman after baptism went on his way rejoicing? Acts 8, verses 39 and 40. He now had a reason to rejoice. How happy do you remember feeling on the day of your baptism? After you emerged from that water, knowing full well that all the guilt of those sins, whatever they were and however many there were, no more was it accounted to your, to your category. It was gone. Absolutely forgiven. You'd been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. No condemnation. Not only that, you may notice the descriptions given to you and to me about the place that we occupy. It's truly remarkable. Some of them are also found later in this 8th chapter of Romans. Notice verses 14 and following. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, they are the sons of God. Now these who are led by the Spirit are those who follow the leading of the Spirit. The Spirit says to be baptized, so those who have followed that and are thus in Christ. Notice they're the sons of God. You and I are sons of God. Now for those ladies in the audience, consider yourself perhaps a daughter of God in the sense that you have been adopted into His family Look at the next verse. For ye have not received the spirit of bondage again to fear, but ye have received the spirit of adoption, whereby cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit itself beareth witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. To each of us who have been baptized and are faithful members of the body of Christ, not only is the sentence of no condemnation, but that is associated with this additional thought. We're heirs of God. We're joint heirs with Jesus. 
let me submit, if I might, allow that thought to dwell upon your mind. Meditate upon that for just a moment. There's going to come a time, of course, when we will recognize the judge is going to stand in grandeur, in awesomeness, and in appearance. And we appreciate so well that the verdict will be delivered to one and all, for every nation will be gathered on that occasion. Matthew 25, verses 31 and 32. There will be a group gathered to which, and there will be the ones on the right, and to them no condemnation is going to be what he says. None. Not any. But you may notice they're also the heirs of God. They're also the ones who shall be taken into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the sense that they're going to enjoy heaven forevermore. We read that in 2 Peter 1, verse 11. Isn't it true, then, that these last thoughts are ours? This sentence that we've learned, no condemnation. Paul has prepared us in verse 25 of chapter 7 for how that sentence is going to be able to be possible. I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord. He's the only one that allows this no condemnation sentence to be possible. He's the only one. Perhaps with that in mind, let's develop that as we come to some of the latter stages at least of our lesson. Because at the cross is seemingly where our mind must now run. Did you notice in our reading as we read a moment ago Romans 8, verse number 3, it says something very telling. It says, For what the law could not do. Here's something the law of Moses could not do. It's not that it was within the confines of the Old Testament and men had just never found it. It's that it was not possible for it to do it. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh. That's the same idea you and I had noted earlier. Not a human being had ever kept that old law perfectly. Not David, not Moses, not any of them. Because through the flesh, men were weak. You notice, for what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh, God sending His own Son... In the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin, condemned sin in the flesh. And Paul's attention as well as yours and mine is now riveted on the cross. God sending His Son. It says in the likeness of sinful flesh. Don't read that as Paul saying Jesus sinned because He didn't. That meant though that He was in every way human like you and I are. He faced the temptations that were around Him. Temptations to do, say and think what He shouldn't. And never ever did he succumb to it. Never ever did he fall victim to falling into that which others encouraged him to do. It was wrong. Sometimes peer pressure comes to you and me, doesn't it? There are those and we don't want to disappoint them and so we go along and do what we know we shouldn't. Although Jesus was in the form of flesh... We notice very quickly it says, He condemned sin in the flesh. Let's present that like this. Hebrews 4.15 puts it in these words, We have not an high priest that cannot be touched with the feeling of our infirmities, but was in all points tempted like as we are yet without sin. He gives to you and me the ideal example of how to handle temptation to overwhelm it, to overcome it, to never fall victim and pray to it. 
Inasmuch as Jesus lived perfectly through life and then died sinlessly, He condemned sin in the flesh. He could thus be that one-time perfect sacrifice for any and all human sin. And so He was. Surely, in light of those things, it brings us now back to the scene of our Lord Himself. Remember, no condemnation to those who are in Him. And I get in Him when I'm baptized into Him. And you notice, as we read earlier, that it's in baptism that we contact His blood at His death. And so back to the cross we go. In 2 Corinthians 5, verse 21, Paul on that occasion said, For He made Him to be sin who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. He suffered the punishment for my sin. And so when I'm in Him, then the punishment that He bore can cover my sins, and therefore no condemnation. The linkage is remarkable, isn't it? And maybe that linkage brings us to this set of verses. So many times the New Testament writers bring us to verses like these. Ephesians 1 verse 7, Forgiveness of sins in Him. Echoed in Colossians 1.14, The redemption that's in Him. Hebrews chapter 9, verses 12 to 14. We remember there the Hebrew writer pointed out, He entered the holy place, not without blood, but with His own blood. And He offered not the blood of bulls and goats, but His own blood. And by that He can make all of us, even our conscience, is perfect. That's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. No condemnation to those who are in Him. One more time, the question must be, am I in Him? And are you? If we're not, notice the threatening clouds that loom on the horizon based on a verse like this one. For you'll notice that earlier we noted there's a legal consideration here and just as surely as they're going to pronounce no condemnation to those on the one hand, that leaves us to conclude there will be condemnation pronounced to all of those who are not in Him. Those who have never been baptized into Him and who have not walked faithfully with Him. As we close that slide, may I ask you to consider one other aspect of that legal vision. And it's this. In John 5, 22, we're told that God the Father is going to commit to the Son all judgment. So the very one who died on the cross is going to stand that day as our judge. He will be the one to pronounce no condemnation to those on the right. But he'll be the one to pronounce condemnation to those on the left. And he will have the full consideration of having been the one who was nailed to the cross, the one who shed his blood, and he will be able to say, because of my blood, all of you who are in me, no condemnation. You'll notice in 1 John 2 verse 1, he's called our advocate. To plead my case and your case because we're in him. You might think of it like this. On the day that you're baptized, you enlist his services as your defense attorney. So if you're not baptized, you've never enlisted His services. If you're not baptized, you have never signed on to His consideration. He's never lost a case. They used to talk about Perry Mason having never lost one. We have a far better consideration here. To those who on that day of judgment will appear, to those who are in Him, not a single one of them will suffer condemnation, not one. Not one. I'd like to have him as my attorney. How about you?
no condemnation to those in Christ Jesus. As we close that slide and notice the hope then that rests in verses 31 and following, let me bring you to appreciate this. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for thy sake we are killed all the day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter. Nay, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him that loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Question. Who can separate me from my Lord? If I'm in Him, who can separate me from Him? Paul says life can't do it. Death can't do it. Governmental authorities, powers, and hierarchies can't do it. Things in the past can't do it. Things in the future can't do it. Things in the present can't do it. Did you notice what's left out of that list? The only entity apparently left out of that list is me and you. I can choose to be unfaithful. I can choose to be lost. I can choose to go astray from the power of the Master. I can choose to thus remove myself from being on the right and put myself on the left. I can do it if I want to. But of course, I will have refused the services of my advocate. I will have refused the services of the Master and now I'll be under the sentence of condemnation again. You'll notice in all of those things... It's time to close our lesson. The demands then that come with this are as follows. We can't just enlist the services of Jesus and then go about our life forgetting the demands that our lawyer now has made. Faithful until death. Revelation 2 verse 10 are the marching orders given to you and me. And so, what about you and what about me? No condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. You'll notice on that slide a number of considerations, all of which converge to this. Are you faithful today? Am I faithful today? I realize many here, the vast majority, at one time were baptized into Christ, and so at some point there was the sentence, no condemnation, and you can put your name in that list. But have you lived faithfully so that that verdict continues to be yours? Verse number 4 will be the last verse of our morning. It is the last part of the lesson. Verse 4 says that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us, but they that are after the Spirit, who walk not, I'm sorry, after the flesh, but after the Spirit, the Greek verbs that are used there describe ongoing, continuous activity. Those who walk day by day after the Spirit. Are you walking after the Spirit today? If you are, then no condemnation is your sentence. And you can feel so delightful inside at the power of that conclusion. You're going to be pronounced fully free of any condemnation. But if all isn't well with you... You've stumbled in the flesh. And though once a faithful Christian, today you're not. Don't allow yourself to leave this building today. Why not come back to your Lord at once? Whatever things are going on in your life, repent of them. 
God is ready to be there. And the Lord Jesus Christ is your advocate by your side, encouraging you day by day. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus, who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. The gospel invitation is yours. If there's anybody in the audience that would have this moment of desire to respond in a public way, why not come? If we could assist you to be baptized so that you could put on Christ, we'd be happy to do that. If you need to come back to your first love, we'd pray to God for you. We'd be happy to do it. We'd just ask you, let us know the way we can do that. And why not do it now while together we stand and while we sing?